On this episode of Healing from Within with Tony Valen, Brett Bevel talks about his book, Healing Racism Within, A Lightworker's Guide. From a deep place within his heart, Brett Bevel is supporting us in realizing that racism exists, not only through our unjust laws and the dysfunctional systemic policies in our businesses, schools, and government, but also in our cells, our emotions, our brains, and our hearts, the ghosts of our ancestors and the family systems we've inherited. And like other forms of disease, it can be addressed and healed if we look at it fiercely and honestly and have the courage to act accordingly. Next on Healing From Within with Tony Valen. Hi, I'm Tony Valen. Welcome. Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate it. We uh, got your book and uh, looked into it, Healing Racism Within, A Lightworker's Guide. So I, you know, we looked into doing some research on you. And for the most part, we could, we could see that you are known as an energy healer. So why a book about racism? What made you choose that subject? Yeah, I feel like really the, the subject chose me in a way. Um, I feel that part of my healing journey has been about overcoming not only uh, issues around severe childhood abuse, uh, you know, growing up in a very traumatic uh, environment, but also witnessing the, the murder of a black man when I was a young toddler. And part of my own healing journey has involved energy healing around that to release that pain, release that trauma for myself. And also I've noticed that in that, in that kind of digging into my psyche with Reiki and other forms of energy healing that I've also been able to release, um, or I feel that I've been able to release a lot of the unconscious racial bias that I was carrying, having grown up in a very racist environment. And so I feel that these are tools that, that, that are valuable to people and are valuable to society and that it just seemed like um, if they're there and if I'm aware of them, I might as well share them with people who can benefit from them. Right. So uh, what you just spoke about was chapter one of your book, and it's titled The Wound That We Cannot See. Uh, what exactly is do you mean when you say the wound we cannot see? Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, psychological filters and cultural filters that we have that that keep us from really looking at the deep trauma uh, that exists in our society around issues of race. Mm -hmm. And I think of that in, in terms of my own personal experience where, where I really, I think, noticed that the most was when I was doing my master's thesis uh, in San Francisco State University. This was in the late 1990s. And the, the master's thesis involved me doing a poetry performance. The poetry performance involved um, some very graphic and honest uh, expressions of around the race-based murder that I had witnessed when I was a child. And I noticed after after I did that event, well, first of all, it felt like 
in this one performance that it was felt like about, you know, several thousand dollars worth of therapy <laughs> for me. But beyond that, I started to notice that even though, even though San Francisco is considered to be, you know, a liberal or sort of progressive place, that when I would read those same poems at, at open mics in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, that I would reach this huge sense of anger and, and resentment aimed at me, which I didn't understand. I'm like, what, what is this about? Why are people who, who seem to be always, you know, quoting Dr. Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or people of the civil rights movement, why are they angry about me just honestly expressing something that I witnessed as a child that was horrible? Why, what, what is that anger about? And I, when I really dug into that, I really have the sense that there's um, a, a sense of people just not wanting to talk about the harsher details of the real pain and the real trauma that, that has existed in our nation for hundreds of years when we think of, you know, one group of human beings actually owning as property another group of human beings and what that meant also in terms of the, the abuse and suffering that those human beings endured because of that and also the suffering and pain of the children of those beings and how that that's get passed on generationally and also when you when you think of it just in terms of through the open eyes of a child let's just imagine for a moment um the the open eyes of a child of of some white child who may have been a child hundreds of years ago on a plantation seeing what their parents or what their grown-ups were doing to other people what what does that do to that child right and how does that become then internalized into behavior that represses those emotions that doesn't want to look at uh, that that pain, and how does that all get then get buried in our in our being on a cultural level, on a large scale level? And so I feel that that these tools that I offer in the book are about ways that we can bring healing to that, and hopefully bring more light uh, into our hearts and into our souls, and hopefully uh, bring more healing to our country as a whole. Right. Um, I, I also noticed that you mentioned that you're married to a woman of color. How did you come about meeting a woman of color and taking her as your wife? I mean, considering, you know, what you were exposed to and the life that you had exposed to. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, well, we, we met at the Omega Institute, which is where we both worked. I still work there. Mm -hmm. um, we were both seasonal staff at the time. And um, so that's how I met her was through that. And it's interesting that um, in the first couple of weeks of our, our connecting, um, I actually shared with her some of the poems that were part of the master's thesis that I told you about earlier. And even though she uh, found those poems to be very raw and very maybe, maybe, maybe had to take a little step back from the intensity of, of those poems, mm -hmm. I think she also respected my honesty and my willingness to look at deeper kind of cultural racial issues that exist in our world. And so I think on a, on a certain level, maybe it was a bonding for us that, that, that I shared that poetry with her. And um, maybe it was instinct that caused me to share those poems with her because I don't always share them with everybody. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, in, in your book, you also mentioned the N-word that was in chapter three. Um, you know, the language has incredible power to do harm, uh, very much against the old sticks and stones saying, um, can you tell us, you know, uh, 
what you discovered about the N-word and, and, you know, the power it holds? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, so it, it's really interesting because I, I, I was raised in almost kind of a, a split environment where on my father's side of the family, they were very extremely outwardly racist, right? It was just, and my parents were divorced. So on my father's side, it was just very blatant. You know, it was there, easy to see. On my mother's side, she externalized this kind of very uh, liberal pers persona. Um, and, um, and yet beneath that, there was still this, this sense of racial hatred, if you want to call it that, for lack of a better word. Right. And then and I would notice it coming up sometimes in the way, not so much the way that she would speak, but sometimes in the way her her parents would speak, um, referring to uh, black people as as those people or they don't know their place and all these kind of weird phrases that uh, that you when you look at it, you can read between the lines that, the, that that's just filled with hatred. And even though I grew up not really saying the N word, um, I think I think it was in my mind. I think it was in all of our minds on some level. And it wasn't until I moved to Oakland, California, and uh, this was uh, during the start of the first Persian Gulf War. And I was working in a fast food place called Quickway, where the vast majority of both the employees as well as the, the clients there uh, were black Americans. And um, so I began to, to learn what it felt like to be the other to be in the minority, to have people look at me in ways that um, maybe didn't always feel that good because I felt at that time, again, it was during the Persian Gulf War, the first Persian Gulf War. And I think a lot of people in that community felt or assumed that I as a white person was probably for the war, even though I wasn't. And so there would sometimes be comments uh, like little jeers or jabs at me at the window as I'm handing out the food. Um, you know about the war and about oh well you know you don't have to worry about the war because you're a white guy and um and it's all of our people that are fighting this war and so i was also very aware of the disproportional representation that you know that that many uh many people in 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 our service uh in the army and our marine corps and etc disproportionately are often people of color and so i was aware, aware that that what they were saying was true and even though even though internally and externally i agreed with them I could feel their anger pointed at me, uh, you know, and and collectively over a period of time, I started to imagine I'm experiencing this now as a white guy working at a fast food restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. What is it like for a person of color who's experiencing that on a daily basis at school, on the street, in the grocery store? experiencing that that lens of hatred and anger that is always being kind of dished out at people whether it's through the n-word or other ways of just you know uh, being discriminated against um and so it really made me look at, at at just the deep pain the painful energy that is in that word and so uh also as a child i i you know i i was often mimicked and and called different names by my, my, my father and my brother and in ways that were meant to demean me. So I also realized that in that, in that aspect, that, that that's what is happening on a larger scale, that, that when we uh, use names in a harmful way, when we call people something, first of all, that they don't want to be called, and we used it as a way to denigrate, just how deeply debil debilitating and painful that is. And so it, it just felt important in this book to acknowledge that 
and to acknowledge that um, uh, that it's a word that needs to be, uh, you know, hands off. <laughs> like, you right. know, sometimes I think white people think, oh, you know, uh, why is it okay if a black person says it? And I think in, in sometimes black people are trying to reclaim that word in their own way, whether it's through rap music or other ways. Um, hmm. And so I just think it's like, we don't have the right to really say it or speak it. There's too much pain there. There's too much trauma there. And um, so it's really just a, kind of an honest reflection on my own journey with that. Right. You know, uh, I've also heard the other side of that is that uh, some, some people I've spoken to, you know, both black and white, feel that if the use of that word, the more common it becomes, it takes more power away from that word. Do you believe that to be true or what do you think? Because I honestly, I, I don't know. I would never use the word. It feels wrong. But uh, yeah, I'll people... say, yeah, I'll just say I would never use the word. And I do feel that there's a, a negative energy in the word. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I don't want to cast judgment upon uh, black people who feel that, that by saying the word that they are reclaiming it. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like I can't I can't judge that. I just know that for me, I'm not going to say it and, and not trying to give energy to it. Yeah. Right. Um, so uh, let me, uh, I'm going to ask you this question, but I want to also tell you a little story. So I, I have a friend that uh, had other co-workers that were, you know, kind of friends and they were going to go on vacation. So they, uh, and you know, said, can you please take care of our dogs? And so he said, yeah, sure. You know, uh, he met with them for dinner and, you know, he had never really had a conversation with them until that dinner and during that time it was from COVID and everybody was working from home and then he got into a conversation with them and he really liked these people but then all of a sudden the ugly side of racism started popping in in the conversation you know like the guy uh the husband was talking about how he's so happy to be working from home instead of working in the office because in the office he was right by the kitchen and those Indian people will come in with their smelly food and they just those damn Indians with their food They just they're horrible and, and on and on and on then the wife, you know was uh, later on in the conversation They're talking about going on vacation to Hawaii She starts going into the fact that you know, she's oh, there's all these Japanese people and blah 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 and so anyway She goes into her rant and then after the fact, you know uh, He really didn't say much of it. He just listened to it and tried to change the subject but then he was having a conversation with me and he said, what would you have done? He said, I feel like such a coward because there, it was something that really just was wrong and I felt it, but I still didn't have the courage to, to go against it. How can we mm -hmm. as people on the street, you know, deal with people that act that way? I mean, that's a, that's a very important point. And I think, um, you know, the word cowardice is something that I, I do talk about in my book that I refer to as white cowardice in the sense that, um, you know, I do think that I think sometimes, you know, we hear the term privilege. Maybe I'm going a little off topic here, but um, no. even though I understand the concept of white privilege and I, I'm not disagreeing with that term, there's something about that term that to me feels a little antiseptic, like it just feels a little too in the head. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I feel like when we really break it down like it's really more about cowardice and the inability or the unwillingness to have the courage to speak out against something that we all know is wrong and that we all know needs to be uh, rectified in our society 
And I think, again, when I talk about all the psychological filters, the cultural filters that exist in our, in our world around issues of race, that I think, you know, many times as a white person, it's very easy to just not engage in, some, in a moment like that, or your friend's talking about. So, you know, there's that sense of choice. Oh, I'm just, I'm just not going to engage it. When we have to really sit back and realize that by not engaging it, we're allow, we're allowing, allowing that that activity to still continue in our society. And even though we think it's a choice to not engage, it's actually an act of cowardice. It's an, it's an act of, um, you know, refraining from doing what we actually know is, is the right thing to do, which right. is to uh, speak speak truth to it. Um, and even though that might be uncomfortable at times, um, I think we just need to really build an awareness and actually, you know, think of it as a muscle. It's, you need to work that muscle and build it and make it stronger and stronger. So to just find the courage within ourselves to speak up when we, when we are in, in those kinds of moments. Right. And um, so I think, well, what more specifically what I was trying to ask or get an answer to was, I like for me, I can speak against it, but I don't want to get confrontational. If anything, I want to get to the point of educating them, making them understand the education you felt. You know, you said you started feeling all that and you started thinking about, well, if I had to feel this every day of my life, you know, how that would be horrible. Yeah. How, how do we, I mean, how can we educate people without getting confrontational? Or do you know? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And again, by me saying that you have to speak speak up about it, it doesn't mean that you have to do it in a, in a way that's confrontational. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's other ways to to look at that. To you know, for example, when when he was talking about, he said the 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 man had issues with the fact that his coworkers were you know uh, cooking Indian food. Yeah. Um, there's there's ways to to look at that and just ask you know. Um, you know, do you, have you ever tried the Indian food? You know, I, I mean, for me, that, and I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Yeah. You know, I love Indian food myself, personally. I actually love the smell of Indian food that that often fills my house when my wife's cooking. So yeah. uh, why does a person in, in, initially have to jump to a place of being offended by the smell of Indian food any yeah. more than they would the smell of barbecue or the smell of Mexican food or the smell of, um, you know, a roast turkey? I don't know. I'm just saying like, like to, to just sometimes just dig in with a question or somebody, you know, oh, you know, I love the smell of biryani. You know, why, why does that offend you? You know, and, and maybe dig into it to where the, the person is, is then having to look at their own biases, their own like um, silent agreements. It's not, I think sometimes we have these silent agreement, this kind of like wink and nod kind of assumption that, oh, well, you know, every other white person is just going to agree with my bias. And if you call people on it, sometimes that, that can make them actually step back and reflect and ask themselves some questions that maybe they weren't willing to ask before. So um, there are times when I think a direct confrontation is needed, but I hear what you're saying. That's not always the most appropriate response. And that's not always the response that is going to help convince somebody to change their behavior. So sometimes just leaning in with a question uh, like that can, can be helpful. Yeah, right. Um, so let's go back to the side of healing. You talk yeah. about uh, uh, the three-week journaling exercise, um, authenticity, 
is the key to the exercise. So can you please tell us about that? You're... Sure. So in the book, I talk about a, a, a journaling exercise where you go for three weeks. And it, at first, you're just really writing about your feelings around things that might trigger you um, in society, you know, and, and I'll, I'll just use myself as an example, because in, in again, in my own history, growing up in a, in a family where there was a lot of uh, racial bias. Um, one thing that that used to trigger me a lot, even into my years of college, and this sounds absurd when I say it now, but at the time it would trigger me, would be when I would hear people speaking in another language. Now, when I think it, that's ridiculous, first of all, that that would be a trigger, but I got it's something I inherited from my grandparents, right? We lived in New Mexico, and they, for, for whatever reason, they would get very riled up when there were people speaking Spanish, even though even though the Spanish speaking people in New Mexico had lived there far, far longer than we had, you know, for hundreds of years, <laughs> families have been speaking Spanish there. And yet my grandparents would get upset when they heard somebody speaking Spanish. So I really started tracking that like, oh, is that really my thought? Is that really my discomfort? Or is that something that I've just inherited from my grandparents and that I'm kind of taking on as my own? So in the three week journaling exercise, you're just writing about, first of all, things that might arise for you, whether it's feeling uncomfortable about somebody, uh, whether it's something culturally that they say, something um, being triggered by, you know, whatever, and just really noting, noting those feelings, being honest about them, not trying to be politically correct about them necessarily, but just being authentic in your journal and writing about them. And then after that, digging deeper into like, well, why did I feel that way? What made me, what made me have that reaction? Was that something that I learned about in school or in, or from a, uh, a coworker or from a relative where, you know, where is the origin of that, that bias or that hatred or that anger and becoming more familiar with it. And then really leaning into ways to, to change that thought and to change that pattern. Um, and it, giving yourself a, th a three week process where you're, you know, not having to feel like you're having to change yourself overnight, but you can really journal about and write about these processes over time. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just like the guy that uh, my friend was talking about, maybe if uh, he started writing down whenever, because his trigger obviously was the smell of food, certain food. So I, I, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. Um, you also talk about the rules of racism. Can you tell us what you mean by the rules of racism? Sure. So rules, that's a term that I'm uh, borrowing from Vishen Lakhiani, who's the, the founder of Mind Valley. He also has written a number of books. One's called Code of the Extraordinary Mind. Um, and he, he's a fabulous teacher. I really highly recommend people exploring his work. Um, but he talks about rules, which basically is short for bullshit rules. And those the bullshit rules are the rules that we kind of we sometimes don't really even question. We just accept them as true. Um, and then and in his work, he's, he's often inviting us to question those bullshit rules. And I've noticed in, in, in looking at, at how kind of the racial landscape of our culture, uh, how there are a lot of bullshit rules that show up. And I mean, one of the bullshit rules is to, again, uh, feeling like that, that as a white person that, that that it's okay to not talk about issues of race, that we can just kind of sidestep it and do whatever we need to do to be comfortable. Like that's kind of a bullshit rule, but a bigger, deeper bullshit rule that I think is important to, to really look at is this idea that exists in a large part of our culture, this kind of romanticized vision of the South, of kind of 
you know, these happy plantations and that, um, you know, kind of like something out of Gone with the Wind. And, and as opposed to really realizing, no, you know, people were owning other people being other human beings that that black people were being shipped like literally like sardines next to each other crammed in these boats across the ocean and many people were dying on those journeys and that you know imagine being being enslaved and having you know metal harnesses around your hands for much of your life and being chained i mean just really let that let that sink in and and, and realize oh there's nothing romantic about that that vision of the south there's no there's nothing to be proud of about that heritage and so when you know i hear these these kind of trigger terms like oh it's our heritage and oh you know being proud of the old south or the confederate flag when you really break it down and you think about it in the fine details there's nothing to be proud about and it's it, it's a again a bullshit rule that this is something that we should be honoring in terms of you know whether it's statues or in our school books or whatever there's nothing to honor there it's totally it's totally dishonorable uh, activities and so we just need to, to name it as such and so that's what those are just some bullshit rules that, that I talk about in the book. Right. Which basically, I mean, what you just finished saying is exactly what I was going to lead to in the next question. You talk about writing a letter of empathy. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, writing a letter of empathy to uh, uh, it's, it could be a real letter that you actually mail to somebody. But if you're not comfortable with that, that's fine. Um, in, in my book, I, I often share and talk about uh, a letter that I wrote to the spirit of Muhammad Ali um, as a child, as a young child, even though, um, you know, again, I lived in a very racist environment. As a child, I had a great deal of admiration for Muhammad Ali. Um, I loved his rhyming poetry. I loved the wit that he had. I admired him as an athlete. Um, and, and I feel like he was kind of one of my childhood idols. And so in the book, I talk about writing a letter to his spirit um, to acknowledge that, to acknowledge that kind of connecting with somebody who is of a different race than your own, and to acknowledge the, the powerful or courageous or beautiful things that exist in that person or those people. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a way to start to build empathy. And so again, in the book, you know, I share a letter that I wrote to the spirit of Muhammad Ali. And if you're writing to somebody who's dead, what I do is, is I write the letter fully as though I was going to pop it in the mailbox to somebody who's living. But instead, what I did then do is I, I kind of ritually burn the letter with the intention that the words on that, that page are then going out to the spirit of that, that person so that they're kind of hearing them, hearing that letter on the other plane uh, mm. of reality. Very nice. Um, I know that uh, I had asked you the question and uh, about how to deal with people, you know, talking in a certain way and you're right there and you, you know, it's wrong. So you do, you know, use words. But other than words, how can we stop people or, or make people aware of, you know, the racism they're putting out there? Is there other ways? Well, I think a lot of my book, I mean, there are other ways, though I think a big piece about, about my book is really um, first starting with ourselves. Because I think even though, even though, even those of us myself who who might consider themselves to be fairly progressive or social socially liberated and have done a lot of, a lot of inner work, the thing is the more work that I do, the more I see that still needs to be done. Right. And so the analogy I use is that 
Um, you know, I often see uh, in environmental uh, conferences and stuff, which they have a lot of at Omega Institute, you know, we'll hear how there's microplastics in everything, right? We all, each of us probably have at least a credit card worth of microplastics in us at any given point in time, right? right? And so it um, doesn't matter what water you're drinking or how, how, how well you're trying to eat, it's, it's in you, right? Mm -hmm. And I look at our culture as being the same way around issues of race. So no matter how, how, how progressive we might feel politically or how much work we might have done or how, how you know, maybe we've read books about white privilege or about uh, our history and, and have intellectualized all that, I still think even in those moments, there's still work that needs to be done inside of each of us. And that, you know, using that, that analogy of that, you know, we all have microplastics in us. I think too, we all have some level of racism in us. Mm, right. It's not always about the neighbor. It's not always about that grandparent. It's in us because it's woven into our society yeah. in ways that are, are very, uh, I don't know, I, I would say insidious, but also just universal like it's 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 in it's in the morphogenetic field of our culture right. and it's not that i'm going to you know point fingers about you know how did that get created the bottom line is it's there it exists in our culture and the way we can be empowered as individuals is first of all by recognizing that it exists and doing the inner work that we each individually need to do to then take it out of our own systems and then once you start moving it out of your own system, then you can feel more empowered to have discussions with whether it's coworkers or family members or people that um, you feel you might need to educate. That's important work and that needs to be done. But I think we first need to start with ourselves. And again, whether it's through doing uh, the journaling work or the art therapy work that's in the book or the energy healing that is in the book, um, the book invites different practices. The hope is that you know, maybe not all of them will appeal to each person, but hopefully each person can at least find a couple of them that will resonate and that will help them do the inner work to really begin to release that racism that I think exists in all of us. Right. Yeah. Another technique, and I'm only mentioning a couple of the techniques, but uh, one of the techniques that uh, stood out to me, and please tell everyone about it, affirmations and lofty questions. Tell us about that technique. Yeah, so affirmations, I mean, most people have heard of affirmations. Uh, I first heard of affirmations uh, in my mid-20s, and I was taught one by a chiropractor at a very important time in my life when I really needed that work, and it was to stand in front of a mirror and uh, tap my heart and say three times, I deeply love and appreciate myself. I deeply love and appreciate myself. I deeply love and appreciate myself. And that one affirmation really carried me through a number of years of, of some very troubled times. I would say that affirmation was kind of like my my life raft through a period of great turmoil in my life. And in working with affirmations in that way, I'm like, well, why can't we also just adapt affirmations to also engage issues around race? And instead of, instead of just, I deeply love and appreciate myself, why not, I deeply love and appreciate all people of all races. I deeply love and appreciate all people of all races. I deeply love and appreciate all people of all races. And that's one that I'm just literally making up right now mm -hmm. we can all engage in that same kind of work or even just you know looking in the mirror and tapping your heart three times and saying you know i deeply love and appreciate all people of color 
and that's not to say that I don't appreciate white people because I do, but to really kind of then focus it uh, on on somebody who you might see as the other or as different and really kind of, again, start to wire your brain to be more open uh, in that way. So that's exploring affirmations in that way. Lofty questions, uh, again, I learned about lofty questions through through the work of uh, Christy Marie Sheldon uh, on the Mind Valley app. And a lofty question is a little bit different than an affirmation. It's actually a question that you would ask that causes your subconscious mind to then kind of want to answer it in a certain way. Um, the lofty questions that that uh, that many people might use just in general were like, you know, why does the universe always have my back? Or why am I so good at always generating abundance, right? So that's just a, a general lofty question that one might use. But again, you can also fine tune them so that they're more about race, right? Or being more open. So, you know, a lofty question of that, that nature would be something like, you know, why am I always so accepting and loving for people who are of different races? Right. And just and with lofty questions, the thing to do is to, to like post them on re your refrigerator or on your door or, you know, maybe somewhere in your office so that you see them often. And what's happening is each time you see them, what, what goes on with a lofty question is when you see the question or when you hear the question or you think the question, your subconscious mind is then always trying to answer that question. And it will start to create things in your in your life, in your field that answer that question. Right. So it will it will help you. It, it's kind of a, a, a backdoor way to get your subconscious mind to start working on something. And I find them to be very effective. So the book has a few, again, that are uh, lofty questions around, you know, uh, healing that race racism that exists within us. Right. You know, the other thing also that uh, you mentioned in your book, and uh, it's a way of being empathetic, but at the same time, a, a matter of education. And that is when you talk about how racism really destroys culture, you know, because uh, it demeans it. it. It it just makes people feel bad about who they are, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and I also talk in the book about, too, about um, culture loss and this idea that um, that that by by not acknowledging the loss or the grief that many of us have around um, you know, for example, I'll just use myself as an example. You know, my heritage is 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 many different cultures. So it's there's French, there's German, there's Greek, there's Dutch, there's Irish, there's Cherokee, and in all of that, I can't say that I honestly know much about any of those cultures. I mean, a little from what I've read around history books, but I can't say that I really feel connection to the Greek part of me or a deep connection to the French part of me or a deep connection to the Dutch part of me or the German part of me or the Irish part of me or the Cherokee part of me. I, I'm, I'm somewhat divorced from all of that ancestral wisdom and all that ancestral knowledge that, you know, in many cultures would be celebrate, celebrated in profound ways in terms of rituals of, of empowerment and healing and ways of understanding, you know, the cycles of life and death, all that cultural wisdom for me personally, with, with all that I am, you know, Greek, German, Cherokee, Dutch, Irish, all that is, I don't know, I don't know it, right? Because I was never raised to appreciate it. And, 
So for me, looking at the grief that is there around being somewhat spiritually divorced from, from those cultures and how they influence me as a white person, I think that that's also something that many white people carry and that many of us are totally oblivious to. Uh, the idea of culture loss, again, is not something that I came up with. I learned about it from my dear mentor, a woman named Caroline, who has since passed on. And it was her belief that that really it isn't until we really look at culture loss as it exists within us that we can then empathize with the culture loss that exists for indigenous cultures and people of the culture of people in colors where where cultures are, have been literally just wiped out and, and diminished in such a horrific way. So it's kind of a two-step process where first we need to grieve that culture loss that existed within ourselves and in our own heritage. Yeah. And then when we can acknowledge that and when we can, we can open that, that heart space within ourselves, then we can have empathy for the massive devastation that has occurred to, to other cultures through, again, through the history of the past 500 years of, you know, colonialism and genocide, et cetera. Right. So if someone wanted to get more information about you and the book, uh, where can people go to find the book and more information about you? Sure. So uh, the book is available pretty, pretty much anywhere. Uh, Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, uh, Bookshop. Uh, also, your local bookstore, if they don't carry it, you could probably easily order it from them um, if you want to support your local bookshop, which I'm always in favor of. Um, and information about me, my website is brettbevel.com. That's B-R-E-T-T dot B-E-V. No, not dot. B-R-E-T-T B-E-V-E-L-L dot com. I was starting to give my email, which has a dot between my <laughs> Right. Well, Brett, thank you so much for being on the show. We appreciate it. And the book is Healing Racism Within a Lightworker's uh, Guide. But thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tony. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you.